this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host ji sampath on june 28 the ministry of environment forest and climate change notified an updated version of forest conservation rules under the forest conservation act 1980 The changes have prompted criticism that the rules will now empower private developers to divert forest land for commercial purposes without first taking consent of forest dwellers as required by the Forest Rights Act 2006. So what exactly are the changes brought about by the new forest conservation rules? Do they really pose a threat to the rights of forest dwellers, Adivasis in the tribal belt especially? And in what ways will they change the way the Forest Conservation Act has been implemented so far? We explore these questions and more in this episode of the In Focus podcast. And our guest today is well-known environmental scholar Kanchi Kohli from the Center for Policy Research, New Delhi. Thank you so much, Kanchi, for joining us. Thank you. Look forward. Uh, Kanchi, to start with, can you give us a quick overview of the Forest Conservation Act, its objectives, and its track record so far in I'm assuming its objective being forest conservation in forest conservation. Yeah, so I think it's important to really understand the Forest Conservation Act in the light of uh, some of the constitutional de- uh, amendments and developments prior to the enactment of this law itself. And uh, I think the 42nd Amendment of uh, to the Indian Constitution really put forests in uh, in the concurrent list of the Constitution by by virtue of that basically powers to govern make rules laws on forest matters is a joint responsibility of both central and state governments can do that. Now once that happened the forest conservation act primarily was a mechanism of uh, you know adopted by the central government to say that before state governments put any forest land for non forest use you need to take prior approval of the central government uh, this is what this uh, the constitutional amendment allowed the center to do and the center uh, did that so the final responsibility to divert forest land or de-reserve forest land from reserve forest status rests with the state governments but before doing that you need to take prior approval of the central government so before this act the state governments did not need to take any approval from the central government no. in fact uh, forest was either uh, under the ministry of agriculture or uh, it was treated as a, as a subject of land which is also both of these are state subjects so So, so what the forest conservation act did in the whole dynamic of forest governance is basically you know gave central government a very important role in determining what state governments do with these areas is it a good thing to have uh, to get, to get the central government involved did the state governments have a bad track record of protecting forests that was the narrative through which the forest conservation act actually was implemented uh, was brought in place saying that uh, there has been extremely discretionary manner in which uh, state governments are going about diverting forest lands uh, for other uses so basically it was it was in many ways a, a tool for the central government to folk saying that we are we will bring in the conservation ethic whereas state governments are putting land to various kinds of uses now whether that led to foregrounding conservation just because it is there in the title of the forest conservation act that itself is a big question because the, the if you see the nature of the law the law basically provides you a mechanism through which you know basically you have a mechanism through which you the kinds of studies you need to do 
uh, to justify that this diversion is required or felling of trees or de-reservation is required, uh, as well as uh, there are compensatory mechanisms in place as part of this uh, this law to say that if you use it for uh, for uh, say construction of a dam or a mine or regularization of encroachments, etc., equal amount of uh, land has to be put. So basically, it's uh, double the amount of degraded forest land or equal amount of uh, non-forest land has to be put under the compensatory afforestation mechanism. So in many ways, it it is a regulatory law, uh, which in its title has conservation. So it can serve conservation purposes, but it's not necessary. It is in many ways a, a land governance tool. Okay. So what are the changes now uh, made to these forest conservation rules? How do they affect the Act in terms of what the Act was able to do earlier versus what uh, is going to happen now? See, I mean, very broadly, what the three kinds of things that this new forest conservation rules are doing. One is that they are clearly clarifying central and state government responsibilities in this procedure. So, for instance, uh, the rules say that uh, it is the state government which has the responsibility for recognition of rights under the Forest Rights Act. And it is the state government which is uh, which is finally responsible for putting land for any other non-forest users. Final orders come from the state government. A lot of this was required in some ways because there was a lot of... Uh, see, the Forest Conservation Act has been a fairly opaque law. Not too many people have known in terms of how the paperwork moves, who is responsible, etc. So it very clearly defines the responsibility of the central and the state governments. It also very clearly gives you a very, you know, makes the act a very linear act. So you do this and then you go here and then you put that. All those kinds of things is, is very clearly defined. It's also giving you timelines when, when for which uh, different institutions have to take decisions. All of which I think have been questions um, and that have been raised by people who are interested in using forest land for other purposes like mines, dams, uh, infrastructure projects, etc. Saying that you please clarify this uh, because it is the non-clarification of this that is leading to problems for us. So the new rules clearly do that. But in doing that, the two other things that follow or are related are very crucial is basically that after the enactment of the Forest Rights Act in 2006, from 2009 onwards and then subsequently in 2016-17, when the forest conservation rules of 16-17 were uh, gazetted, basically a very important component of Gram Sabha consent was embedded in the forest diversion procedures. And basically to say that uh, no forest diversion will take place unless and until there is a consent of the Gram Sabha uh, where rights of people are going to be affected is part of the pool of procedures that has to be followed before a diversion, even even a prior approval of the uh, forest diversion takes place. Now, that embedding of, of the Gram Sabha consent actually democratized the entire uh, forest diversion process, which was, as I mentioned earlier, highly opaque, did not have any space for public participation or uh, leave alone consent. In the new rules, that requirement of Gram Sabha consent actually does not find a place. So basically, the, the previous rules have been replaced by these new rules, where there is no requirement of Gram Sabha consent prior uh, for prior approval by the central government so in many ways central government absolves itself of the responsibility uh, of ensuring that there is gram sabha consent which it had upheld earlier uh, so that is the second change big change that uh, the forest conservation rules does the third is basically 
it presents a very elaborate scheme of uh, compensatory afforestation and this is important because um from the early nine, from mid early 1990s uh, it, it it almost got established that compensatory forestation as a mechanism is actually not working out for most uh, forest diversion processes and because there was lack of availability of land uh, or uh, money was not being deposited by user agencies a whole bunch of uh, so the the failure of compensatory forestation was a, a, a reality that was actually very evident uh, from the in fact it was debated in the supreme court etc now what this uh, new set of rules does is gives you a elaborate set of mechanisms and schemes through which even before you approach uh, the government for uh, forest diversion or use of forest for uh, other other forest land for other purposes you can actually secure uh, land uh, that can be put um, you know so there are accreditation schemes there are land for land schemes all of which actually have been mechanisms that have been put in place so that that does not cause a hindrance in putting forest diversion processes in in place so because user agencies were not able to find non forest land as compensatory uh, mechanism there's the limits to how much degraded forest land you can put under plantations uh, i think this is what um, the the third third big change that uh, the forest conservation rules really put out right so basically uh, if i understand you correctly you, you sort of pointed to three major uh, changes under the new rules one is of course it clarifies the role of state governments and the central government which is i'm assuming not a bad thing at all uh, secondly it sort of removes the way gram sabha consent was embedded in the pool of procedures for forest diversion that's no longer the case at least from the central government's point of view so for prior approval you don't need their consent and thirdly you're saying uh, this this whole mechanism of compensatory afforestation which has uh, not been effective so far it's now got a further boost by additional ways of uh, facilitating it now coming to the second point here so if the central government has washed its hands off this gram sabha consent does this mean that it's not going to be easier for developers and commercial interests to divert forest land or is it still possible for gram sabhas to ensure that the rights of forest dwellers are secured by going to the state government how does it work absolutely i think state governments have a have a huge role to play now uh, when it comes to upholding the role of the gram sabhas and i think that is a that's a constitutional mandate in fact if you look at 73rd and 74th amendment of the constitution the role of you know decentralization is a very much part of uh, should be very much part of governance in india so i think the state governments can definitely play a role in uh, coming up with uh, procedures at their that are own level so if if there is a clarification of the role that the state government needs to play through the project steering committee that has been spoken about in the forest conservation rules or any other mechanisms that state governments might put in place because state governments have uh, the responsibility of recognition of rights uh, and also uh, putting up the paperwork for uh, or or uh, examining the paperwork put forth to them by the user agencies to uh, ensure that uh, uh, you know whether whether land should be diverted for a mine or a industry or etc etc i think it's very uh, it's the the state governments definitely have a very important role to play uh, in this and i think uh, it can also be elaborated and clarified to bring on board gram sabha consents and this becomes particularly important in in places in fifth and sixth sixth schedule areas where uh, there are there are uh, constitutional uh, safeguards uh, related to governance and decentralization 
So would you then say that this apprehension, like many of the opposition parties have said now that it's become very easy to hand over, you know, forest areas where Adivasis are living uh, for industrial development without, you know, uh, really taking into account their rights. The fact that it's made it easier, is that, do you think, do you see no merit in that apprehension? No, I think there is absolute merit in that apprehension because as of now, there are no mechanisms in place. So as of now, you do not have, uh, one, you do not have state governments coming forward to say, okay, if central government is saying that Gram Sabha requirement is not part of the central rules, we will put in place procedures. So we don't, we haven't heard uh, sounds of that at all uh, coming from anywhere. And that is also the case because both central and state governments are interested in diverting forest land for infrastructure and other projects. So there is there, both central and state governments are looking for revenue from these lands uh, from and converting these lands for other uses. Now, this is not to say that these uh, the lands have to be you know the future of these lands have to be frozen. Uh, but the thing is, when decisions on how to use forest land for other purposes is you know up before any government, why shouldn't there be a decentralized procedure which was earlier embedded and recognized by all? And it is also in line with the mandate of the Forest Rights Act. Why should that not be part of a procedure? Because the all it's saying is that you need, you know, you embed the uh, idea of uh, Gram Sabha consent. If the Gram Sabha gives consent, you can still have, um, you know, you, the diversion can still go through because it kind of, as I said, decentralizes and democratizes the entire process. The the apprehension or the statements about it being easier uh, for user agencies to access uh, land uh, holds because when you set up a Gram Sabha process, it needs to be an informed process. It takes time. It also throws up challenges saying that if the Gram Sabha says no, then, um, you know, it is it becomes an important tool of negotiation even for the Gram Sabhas. So I think uh, uh, if if the paperwork is only between uh, central and state governments and the user agencies, papers can move faster because you're not really taking it to a constituency who's uh, who are going to be facing the maximum impacts of this decision, but will have no role to play in taking that decision. Right. So under the new rules, when when the uh, when the entire issue comes to say the state government or the Gram Sabha. It will be at a stage where the user agency and the central government would have already reached a stage of having given some kind of a prior consent without these uh, ground level uh, stakeholders being involved. Is that right? Yes, but as I was saying, state government, the rules also prescribe setting up of a project steering committee at the state levels. And uh, if that project steering committee's composition is diversified, uh, and, and has has uh, actually it it in, includes more people than this, just the forest department, uh, and that project steering committee puts together a requirement for Gram Sabha consent. It is still possible uh, to build build that procedure, but as of now, there is none of that is um, in place. Right. So you referred briefly to this compensatory afforestation mechanism. So one provision, uh, which of course has also attracted a lot of attention, is this provision that private parties now can cultivate plantations and then sell them as land to companies who need to meet these compensatory afforestation targets. Now, can these cultivated plantations really be considered as forests that are good enough to replace whatever forests you are sort of destroying? Or for the, for that matter, we also have these carbon sink targets that India has committed to. So, do these cultivated plantations really fit that requirement? 
so in so i think the two parts of what you're what you're saying one i think we need to uh, be very clear that compensatory afforestation and the forest diversion processes forest conservation act has always looked at so we need to step back and first distinguish between forests and forest land the compensatory afforestation mechanisms is essentially a land for land scheme so you you know forest department is losing land so against that you need to get land in uh, so you know it's it's designed as a land for land scheme the idea about private plant people with private lands growing plantations and actually handing it over against uh, for a, for a compensatory afforestation scheme actually feeds into that narrative that it is land for land it doesn't matter what's on it you know so if you're actually mutating land that is lost you know basically registering land that is lost for other purposes uh, and you you're you're bringing in non forest land into the the fold of the forest department uh, and and recorded as forest so that is a land for land scheme what we also uh, the the other part that you were asking about uh, the carbon sinks i think this this uh, the elaborate compensatory afforestation mechanism and private plantations definitely allows for the uh, the government the central government to pursue the twin objectives of uh, both basically uh, meeting its targets under the national forest policy uh, of 30, 33% forest cover as well as you know uh, responding to the large targets under the, our contributions for uh, to the to the paris agreement and the and the climate change discourse of creating carbon sinks as mitigation measures uh, and in that kind of uh, and you know putting a large area under plantation so a scheme like this will can actually allow bookkeeping on both ends really right so uh, i mean coming back to this land for land uh, logic i mean forests uh, even if we assume uh, the land which is being talked about as a replacement is actually forest land which it may not always be the case when I mean, forests are of different kind i mean if you if you take forest land say in rajasthan uh, the amount of trees and biodiversity and i don't know the carbon sink capacity there i don't know if they can be compared to say a tropical forest in uh, kerala or andamans or whatever so i mean is it like scientifically sound strategy for preserving biodiversity a balance in ecosystem so suppose you you say i am going to give this wasteland for plantation and that wasteland becomes some kind of a plantation with just those plantation trees how does it compare with a with a rich tropical forest that you are uh, going to divert in some other state yeah so i think i don't even think this scheme is designed to look at that logic i think uh, you know at max uh, uh, what is happening is the the compensatory afforestation mechanism is ensuring that there is the land is compensated for there are other related processes like uh, payment for the net present value for the diversion of forest land which tries to bring in some of the ecological angles saying that if when you bring in this land under um, you know for for compensatory plantation or other afforestation mechanisms some of the ecological parameters uh, need to be put in place but the experience with compensatory uh, afforestation Uh, clearly shows that that is not the case uh, in fact a lot of the money is being put to uses that are not not even remotely um, you know facilitative of plantations leave alone other ecological parameters the uh, the other point that you were raising in terms of replacing one kind of forest with another kind of forest i don't think that is part of the debate at all it is just it is designed as you know as long as your paperwork says that you've actually allocated x amount of money and x amount of land for compensatory forestation the ecological biodiversity arguments leave alone the rights um, arguments uh, in terms of uh, so for instance when you actually put 
a grazing land or a grassland under plantations you're also affecting different kinds of rights of people who might be using that that area so all of that is really not part of it these are peripheral issues not really part of how the scheme itself is designed okay so that that's, that makes it sound like a i don't know very a bookkeeperish kind of an approach to you know this many square kilometers to be replaced by this many square kilometers elsewhere kind of a thing rather than something which is coming from an ecologically informed approach to forest conservation yeah we are running out of time so one final question uh, since we began with the whole issue of rights of forest dwellers and gram sabha consent what has been our track record so far uh, in the implementation of the forest rights act because it does affect uh, it does have a bearing on uh, on other ministries and their developmental projects and compensation and business interest and so on so has the forest rights act had many successes of uh, forest dwellers getting their due either in terms of stopping a project and protecting their place of uh, you know where they survive or in terms of getting a uh, suitable compensation so that they are able to make their life uh, afresh somewhere else so i mean uh, it's a uh, discussion it's, it's a, you can have a detailed discussion on this topic itself but i think the the uh, the experience with the forest rights act has been extremely mixed the uh, the research out there already shows that there has been much more emphasis on individual forest rights even by state governments that are interested in implementing this law and have uh, have taken it upon uh, upon themselves to have uh, uh, the mandate to implement this uh, what do you mean by individual forest rights so the forest rights act basically provides for both individual forest rights and community forest rights so you can have these are the two kinds of rights that uh, the forest rights act actually provides for there there are individual titles that are granted and also community governance and uh, related titles that are granted as part of or, or uh, as part of the uh, entire process the the issue uh, that has i think broadly also happened here which i wanted to flag is this the distinction between recognition of rights and settlement of rights uh while the forest rights act through its preamble really talks about recognition of rights which is much more of a political process most state governments have approached forest rights act as a settlement of rights process so which is much more of a bureaucratic process and i think um, to to actually complete the paperwork now that paperwork to complete that paperwork is extremely crucial because it gives lots of title holders a legal right to be able to establish ownership but also negotiate in cases of forest diversion and compensations etc or access to schemes that's a very important mechanism but the completion of paperwork also allows rights to get legible so it's it's very clearly on record and in case you need to acquire those rights uh, there is no there is uh, there is no ambiguity so it kind of you know for the state it also serves an important purpose of settling the rights which can be extremely empowering but it also can lead to processes of acquisition uh, and uh, you know uh, by the state the state uh, actually uh, exercising its eminent domain powers to acquire those rights right right i think this is a very complicated uh, kind of uh, a mix of issues here and we'll probably need uh, another couple of podcast episodes to sort of go through all of them thank you so much kanchi for sharing your insights and views on the forest conservation rule changes and i think uh, it'll be uh, interesting to see how the response is in the days going forward both in the parliament and outside uh, thank you so much once again pleasure talking yeah, same here thank you in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues 
In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.